gentlemen, hello. I'm Ann Hollander, president of Penn American Center, and I'm delighted to welcome you all to what promises to be a brilliant evening in honor of Penn's great friend and America's beloved playwright, Arthur Miller. You know we are celebrating You know we are celebrating Arthur's 80th birthday, but uh, we, Penn wishes to go on rejoicing in the event, even though it happened a couple of weeks ago, uh, by uh, producing this unique evening. We hope he will like it and that you will too. But Penn could not uh, have created this tribute to Arthur Miller without the great and good offices of the Laura Pells Foundation whose most generous grant has made tonight's program possible. And Laura Pels herself has thus continued uh, her most gratifying support of Penn's work, along with her generous help to the American theater in general. We are very much in her debt. <laughs> now, in order to uh, also to continue I beg your pardon? Can you now hear me? Better? Could you hear any of what I said? <laughs> I hope so. All right, is this better? All right, very good. Uh, <laughs> to continue then, uh, as I was saying, to continue rejoicing in uh, Arthur Miller's 80th birthday, even beyond this evening's event. Uh, we also wish permanently to recognize Arthur Miller's tireless work for the cause of free expression. Penn has therefore established the Arthur Miller Freedom to Write Endowment Fund. And I am pleased to announce Penguin USA as the founder of this fund and to render Penn's deep thanks to them and to the other donors who have contributed to it. Now, several distinguished persons could not be here this evening to celebrate this birthday, but they have sent their greetings. I would like to read to you the messages sent by Arthur Miller's absent friends and admirers. There are six of them. <laughs> that I'm going to read. Dear Arthur, I would like to congratulate you today on your birthday as a doyen of all playwrights and as my longtime friend whose help and kindness I have always been thankful for. I hope that the forthcoming years will make you happy, energetic, and as full of humor as you always were. Yours, Václav Havel. Arthur is a national treasure and a wonderful man. In many ways, through his eloquent and uncompromising work, he is the chronicler of the American conscience. I wish him the happiest of birthdays. Jane Alexander. 
warmest birthday greetings to a great writer and a great man, Harold Pinter. Congratulations on your 80th birthday. Colorado is celebrating Miller time tonight <laughs> with a production of The Last Yankee at the Denver Center Theater Company, which is deeply affecting a large and growing audience. Thank you for your gift to us, sign The Last Yankee Company. <laughs> Dear Arthur, with love, in the house in distant Johannesburg, where it was a joy to have you as a guest of honor a few years ago, I celebrate the great achievements of your life as a writer and as a man who has always met the demands of our time with total integrity to the ideal of human freedom in art, politics, and personal relationships. Viva Arthur Miller at 80, Nadine Gordimer. Don't let the figure 80 daunt you, Arthur. The best is yet to come. Remember Verdi, Sophocles, and the great Persian poet Saadi, who reputedly only started writing at 72. Fortunately, he lived to be 106. So you see, you still have much to do. I cherish the evenings at your house, the company, the talk, the laughter, and Inga's fabulous food. Long may it continue, John Tillinger. And that's the last one. And now, on with the show. Our first speaker is Carlos Fuentes. Carlos Fuentes is Mexico's most celebrated novelist and critic. In 1987, he won the Miguel de Cervantes Prize, Spain's most prestigious literary award. His 11th novel, Diana, the Goddess Who Hunts Alone, has just been published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Mr. Fuentes. Dear Arthur, dear Inge, ladies and gentlemen, there is a photo of a crowd of several thousand Parisians walking down the Rue Soufflot on the day of President François Mitterrand's inauguration in May of 1981. One man stands head and shoulders above the multitude. His friends can easily identify Arthur Miller, head bare in the stormy afternoon, raincoats slung over a broad shoulder, eyeglasses firmly set on the Mount Rushmore profile. <laughs> he looks like a Jewish Abraham Lincoln, Bill Styron <laughs> said that day. But this physical height, I have then thought, and I repeat tonight, is nothing compared to the moral, political, and literary height of Arthur Miller. Nothing has cut him down, personal tragedy, political challenges, intellectual fads. I grew up in the United States in the 1930s, when America counted on its most precious resource, its human capital, to face and overcome its problems. I was forever marked by my admiration for Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal when this country put its trust in its own people and believed that greatness meant joining ideals 
and practice. Later, when the USA began to divorce power from principles, when it thought that it did not need friends because the only thing that counted was interests, I knew that I could always look towards Arthur Miller and renew my faith in this great country, my neighbor to which I am inexorably linked as a Mexican. Miller is universally admired in Mexico and throughout Latin America. He stood up to the McCarthys and the McCann-Walters. They are forgotten and justly so, but their menace should be recalled today. The horizon of the 21st century approaches charged with the dark clouds of racism, xenophobia, ethnic cleansing, extremist nationalisms, loss of compassion, disregard for justice, and religious fundamentalism, but also the fundamentalism of the marketplace. All of these forms of intolerance are dictating, think like me or else, be like me or else. How to live with he or she who are not like you and me? This will be the great demand of the coming century, and it is already staring at us in a view from the bridge and the crucible. Humanity lives through inclusion and perishes through exclusion. From all my sons to broken glass, Miller has opened his arms to this embrace, this abrazo of humanity. As the right wing in the United States repeals the New Deal, Miller's theater renews its faith in the aching America that must not be forgotten under the trappings of a revolution of privilege posing as fiscal responsibility. The wounded... <clears throat> The wounded America of death of a salesman goes on living, reminded us of all that we have forgotten. Willie Lohman forever cries out from the abyss of a growing separation, a growing underclass, a growing division between the few who have all and the many who have nothing. We do not live in the best of all possible worlds. Todos mis hijos, las brujas de Salem, la muerte de un viajante, panorama desde el puente, después de la caída, Arthur Miller has made us feel that the dilemmas of the men and women of the United States are also ours, shared, understood, embraced by Latin America and the rest of the world. He has made of the I a we, and of the we an us. In 1965, Miller received me and several excludable and undesirable aliens under the shelter of Penn International in New York. Pablo Neruda and I then wrote that this uh, event perhaps meant that the Cold War was over, at least in the realm of culture. The Cuban literary bureaucracy did not like that. The Cold War should go on, they said, because the two ideologies were irreductible, capitalism or communism. Again, Miller saw behind this Manichaean mentality towards a world in movement, a world of encounters, where men and women and their ideas and longings and doubts meet and sometimes hurt, but finally nourish and create one another. Arthur Miller has always found that grain of truth in every idea, in every individual, that ever since Sophocles has been the origin of theater and tragedy. Perhaps tragedy is the recognition of the truth of the other. And the stage is the space of the time required for experience, pain, or joy to become knowledge. One last thing. I divide my time between Mexico City and London. One of the reasons I spend half of the year in Britain is that there 
I get to see all of Arthur Miller's plays. <laughs> which I would not if I lived in New York. The difference, of course, is that Britain, along with the rest of the European community, has a national repertory theater, public funding for the arts, and a decentralized constellation of theaters beyond the dominating metropolis, catering to a quality-oriented audience, an audience created precisely by public policies, by public concern. From Chichester... <clears throat> from Chichester to Edinburgh, from Nancy to Avignon, from Barcelona to Seville, from Hamburg to Munich to Salzburg. Public policies, public concern. This is a striking difference with a city where sometimes one single newspaper and even one single critic hold sway and decide the life or death of a work for the stage that might just conceivably hold more meaning, deserve more attention, and harbor more promise than just one critic or one newspaper might warrant it. In this also, the life and work of Arthur Miller are exemplary. He is a Quixote of the American and the world stage, proving over and over ag again that the windmills are giants and that the human imagination, if it cannot change the world, can always found another, perhaps even a better world. Muchas felicidades, Arturo. Thank you. Edward Albee has won the Pulitzer Prize three times. He's the author of Three Tall Women, A Delicate Balance, Seascape, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And he has recently completed a play about Federico Garcia Lorca. He is now at work on a play called The Play About the Baby. Mr. Albee. I think with uh, everybody, each of us has people we know and admire a lot. And we probably have a moment in our acquaintance with these people that we remember above all others. It is not necessarily the first moment we have spent with them or the most recent one, but one thing always stands out. Mark Rothko and I, for example, great painter, sitting out by the ocean, my house in Montauk, sitting there, listening to the ocean, in a jacket, a tie, and a Humbug. <laughs> that will always be my memory of, of Mark Rothko. Uh, Samuel Beckett, waiting for me. I was not very late, but he was <laughs> But he was always early. waiting for me politely and nicely 
in, in a cafe, not wasting his time reading, of course, and seeming slightly annoyed that I had showed up because the book <laughs> was so good. <laughs> and a time with Arthur Miller. Not the first time we met, not recent, but a time that impresses me so much by what writers really should be doing beyond writing. It was a time on 67th Street between 3rd and Lexington Avenue where Arthur and I were both carrying, were they placards, were they signs, protesting outside of the Soviet mission to the United Nations. Uh, it is that quality uh, of, of Arthur's understanding of what it is to be a writer that I wish to celebrate tonight. Everybody will celebrate his, his writing, but his comprehension of what it is to be a writer and the responsibilities of a writer, always to the barricades. Penn is a very important organization. Penn is our conscience. Penn makes sure as best it can that writers who are imprisoned are taken out of prison. Writers who are silenced are allowed to, to speak again, not only uh, around the world, but also in the United States. Let me just tell you one example of how Penn was very important to me. A number of years ago, I was going to South Korea and Japan. In South Korea, uh, the, a general was still in, in control. General Pak, I believe, was still running this theoretical democracy. And I had been asked, would I carry letters from Penn and from the Dramatists Guild to uh, President Pak of South Korea protesting the imprisonment of seven, I believe it was, uh, Korean writers, two of whom were women, three of whom had terrible tuberculosis in prison. I, I carried these letters and uh, the president was busy. But I spoke to the vice president. He received the letters, I read them to him, the protesting letters from Penn and and, and from the Dramatist Guild. And he said to me, one of the most instructive things I have ever heard as a writer in my life. He said, Mr. Albee, you don't understand. We cannot free these seven poets and writers because if we did, the government would fall. Governments fall when writers live up to their responsibilities. I think Penn is going to have to concentrate a good deal more in the near future, and I hope not forever, but in the near future, on abuses in this country. We all know from examining what, what happened in the Soviet Union, examining what happened in Nazi Germany, examining what is still happening in many countries around this world, that authoritarian and dictatorial governments fear the creative mind, fear writers, and will imprison them and silence them in any way they can. Democracy is enormously fragile. It can collapse just like that. And I am deeply worried about what is happening in this country now with the dismemberment of the 
aesthetic education of the people in this country, the dismemberment of the national endowment, the fear on the part of so many of the leaders of this country in Congress, it's the fear of the intellectual, the fear of the creative act. This is a fear that is not far removed, except a slight twisting of the knife, not far removed from the fear that took place in the Soviet Union, the fear that took place in Nazi Germany, the fear that exists in China right now. There are 2,800 members of Penn, all of them writers, some of them never enough, some of them understanding that the responsibility of a writer is not merely to write, but that the communication that the writer is attempting is an attempt to alert people, to change the world. We have writers like Arthur who understand this and uh, keep doing it. Arthur, I think you're going to have to keep your right hand strong, your right arm strong, because I think we're going to have to be at the barricades again, and I think you'll have to carry the banner. I know you will, and bless you. has won the Academy Award twice for her performances in Bullets Over Broadway. Can you still hear me? Bullets Over Broadway and Hannah and Her Sisters. And she stars in Mike Nichols' upcoming film, Birdcage. Sam Waterston stars in movies, television, and theater. And he both co-produced and appears in the film, The Journey of the August King, opening in November. These two actors will read a scene from Act Four of The Crucible by Arthur Miller. Child, it grows. There is no word of the boys. They're well. Rebecca Samuel keeps them. You have not seen them? I have not. You are a marvel. have been tortured? I <laughs> You want me to get a, Sammy, get a different mic? We'll, we'll turn, turn on, on the mic. mic 
and start again. <laughs> oh, there. Okay, we'll start again. Thank you. Maybe you should. Hello, hello. Child. It grows. There is no word of the boy. Farewell. Rebecca Samuel keeps them. You have not seen them? I have not. You are a marvel, Elizabeth. You have been tortured? I. They come for my life now. I know it. None have yet confessed. There be many confess. Who are they? There be a hundred or more, they say. Goody Ballard is one. Isaiah Goodkind is one. There be many. Rebecca? Not Rebecca. She is one foot in heaven now. Naught may hurt her more. And Giles? You have not heard of it. I hear nothing where I'm kept. Giles is dead. When were he hanged? He were not hanged. He would not answer I or nay to his indictment. For if he denied the charge, they'd hang him surely and auction out his property. So he stand mute and died Christian under the law. And so his sons will have his farm. It is the law, for he could not be condemned a wizard without he answer the indictment, I or nay. And how does he die? They press him, John. Pressed. Great stones they lay upon his chest until he plead, I or nay. Then say he give them but two words. More weight, he said, and died. More weight. Aye. It were a fearsome man, Giles Court. I have been thinking I would confess to them, Elizabeth. What say you if I give them that? I cannot judge you, John. What would you have me do? As you will, I would have it. I want you living, John, that's sure. Giles' wife, has she confessed? She will not. It is a pretense, Elizabeth. What is? I cannot mount the gibbet like a saint. It is a fraud. I am not that man. 
My honesty is broke, Elizabeth. I am no good man. Nothing spoiled by giving them this lie that we're not rotten long before. And yet you've not confessed till now. That speak goodness in you. Spite only keeps me silent. It is hard to give a lie to dogs. I would have your forgiveness, Elizabeth. It is not for me to give, John. I'd have you see some honesty in it. Let them that never lied die now to keep their souls. It is pretense for me, a vanity that will not blind God, nor keep my children out of the window. What say you? John, it come to naught that I should forgive you if you'll not forgive yourself. It is not my soul, John. It is yours. Only be sure of this, for I know it now. Whatever you will do, it is a good man that does it. I have read my heart this three month, John. I have sins of my own to count. It needs a cold wife to prompt lecture. Enough, enough. Better you should know me. I will not hear it, I know you. You take my sins upon you, no, John. No, I take my own, my own. John, I counted myself so plain, so poorly made, no honest love could come to me. Suspicion kissed you when I did. I never knew how I should say my love. It were a cold house I kept. Do what you will, but let none be your judge. There be no higher judge under heaven than Proctor is. Forgive me, John, forgive me, John. I never knew such goodness in the world. Margot Jefferson is drama critic for the New York Times. And this year, she won a Pulitzer Prize for criticism. She will engage in dialogue with Arthur Miller about the writing and the first production of The Crucible. read a line of yours first which what we just heard brought to mind there is a radical politics of the soul 
as well as of the ballot box and the picket line, which is from your autobiography, Time Bend. Uh, now, do you remember the writing on that scene? Do you remember the scene the, uh, that particular played. scene? Begin, no. I don't let's, think so. let's start earlier. Take me. <laughs> there might have been some, you know, trauma um, about one particular exchange. Take me back to, you know, the first time you began to seriously think about writing the crucible. You know, I had <coughs> a demented uh, idea when I was at college that I would be a historian. It lasted about three weeks. <laughs> and uh, in that period, though, I read about the witchcraft in uh, Salem. This was in the late 30s. And uh, it just seemed an incomprehensible deviation from all reason. And I forgot about it. In uh, the 50s, as I tried to uh, communicate with my fellows, and uh, a kind of miasma was rising, and you couldn't say anything without drawing some kind of suspicion on yourself, I began to think of the crucible of the witchcraft mm -hmm. because the questioning in the trials was magnificent by the, by the prosecution. They were able to turn any phrase into an accusation, no matter what. For instance, a woman says, uh, I know not what a witch is. And uh, the prosecutors say, well, how do you know you don't know what a witch is? Yes. If you're not a witch, or you haven't seen a witch. So the most innocent statement could be turned against whoever it was. And I found in the witch trials a way of uh, lifting out of the current times mm -hmm. a, uh, a verb, a way of speaking, a way of arriving at the psychological truth behind a hysterical mania of paranoia. And uh, it seemed to me, anyway, that that would be a great story to tell. You have written that it was very difficult for you at first, because though you intellectually saw the link, the ritualistic quality, the irrationality, the um, hysteria seemed so far from your vision of your own rationality uh, that you were, you know, you didn't know what to do. You had a theme, um, and yet it wasn't a set of live actions and gestures. What happened? Well, what happened was, as usual, you see that if you read the records in the courthouse of Salem, which are there, you can call up, or used to be able to do anyway, you ask for the records of uh, 1692, and they hand you this book. Uh, just like a real estate man go in there and say, I want the records for 1940 or whatever. And uh, you can see all the questions. It's, it's there. And there are literally hundreds of characters because it involved a whole village. And uh, to make some concrete, concise tale out of this, was uh, very difficult. So I could only follow, finally, a projection of my own, which is John Proctor, who did exist, mm -hmm. but 
God knows what he was like, except there's very little evidence. And that's a creation of man. What was the projection? What, what was the thread? Well, you see, the, the thing in, these, in all these events is that people carry into the event their own guilt. Everybody's guilty about something. And the power of this paranoia depends upon the ability of the state to seize upon that guilt and make people ashamed by virtue of the fact that they're already ashamed when they walk into the court. Because they're Jews or Christians or Mohammedans or something and they're afraid of God and they know they've sinned and the prosecutor knows they've sinned. And so they start off guilty. Not necessarily as charged, but That's guilty right. and as they will be charged, yes. Right. All right, so now I don't think there is a person in this room who writes who hasn't experienced um, the, that pull, that difficulty when things, when big events are going on in society around you and you know, unless you're a Tom Paine or a Frederick Douglass, you're going to have to find some other way. Uh, tell me what the pull was between your digging in to Salem and these trials and as you say, trying to find an unstoppable action, not just the theme, as the House Un-American Activity Committee is going on as you are every day encountering friends and former friends um, who are making decisions about what to say, what not to say. How is this all? You know, uh, the kind of questioning that went on literally in Salem was practically a reproduction of the questioning in the House Committee of Un-American uh, un Activities. I'll tell you something else. Tell me. <laughs> tell me. Uh, about seven or eight, oh, I guess more like 10 years ago, I was in my publisher's office at Globe Press, and in walked this Chinese lady. And uh, her name was Yin Chang, and she had written a great book called Life and Death in Shanghai. She had been seven years in solitary confinement in China. Uh, under the Cultural Revolution. And they had simply charged her with everything but sinking the, the uh, her battleship. I mean, she was guilty of everything. She was a very educated woman, had been married to a Chinese who ran Standard Oil in China. Anyhow, it was for that reason, basically, that she was arrested. Uh, he was dead long since, but they arrested her and they killed her daughter and etc. I won't go into all the detail, but the point was, when she met me, she burst into tears. It was a complete accident. But Grove was publishing her book as well as mine. And uh, I said, well, why are you so affected? She said, well, I'll tell you a story. She said, I was in prison for six, seven years, rather, and my hands were tied behind me all that time, so I had to eat like an animal. And uh, finally, the gang of four was thrown out, as you recall. The regime changed, and they came into the cell, and they said, you can go now. And she said, uh, well, I'm not going anywhere until I get an apology from the government. So she stayed there for a few months, until finally a letter arrived apologizing for the whole thing. A friend of hers said, arrived and said, I've directed a play in Shanghai. You've got to come see it. What is it? It's called The Crucible. Well, she'd never heard of it or of me. And we, she went to the play, and she said, when I watched the play, I wondered 
who had doctored up this dialogue. Because it was exactly the same as I had gone through in the Cultural Revolution. You see, these events create the same dialogue. Which is, you are guilty in advance, That's we right. will combine big, right. seemingly social-political facts with these psychological right. twists and turns. Uh, yeah. And then and it's, yeah, it'll be like a light. She said, I couldn't believe a non-Chinese had written this play. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> there I go. It's true. Um, it was extremely controversial at the time. Um, oh, it, yeah. Yes. Now, I suppose the simplest controversy, I mean, the most easily dispensed with is the, you know, oh, you... Why don't you write? What did the committee say to you? Why don't you write, you know, more uplifting and more positively about more positively America. about America and American history? Um, <laughs> but your own cohorts, um, liberals, leftists, etc., had many, many um, mixed feelings. Some felt that you were wantonly, you know, making this historical connection. Others felt that it was you were hiding a bit. What about what? what what still is worthwhile to you of the criticisms made of this play? If you were doing it again, what might you do different? What stayed with you? You know, when it opened, they called it a cold play. I've never written anything hotter, see, but they called it a cold play, partly because the production was directed by a man who said over and over again to the actors, now this is a Dutch painting. This was Jed Harris? Jed Harris. Yeah. And it's a Dutch painting. It's a Dutch painting. Uh, remember, there used to be a cigar called the Dutch Master's Cigar? Yeah. <laughs> Think of yourself as a Dutch Master's Cigar. Well, it was yeah. that kind of a yeah. picture that he yeah. wanted. And consequently, there was no flow of acting or emotion going on. But within about eight months, a young group of actors, not as good as the original cast, which was terrific people, put the same play on. It was a great success. But in the meantime, McCarthy had died. And suddenly it became possible to begin to talk with, one, with each other again. The, some of the fear had left. And uh, of course, I remember the, mind you, I wrote that play right after the death of a salesman. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was a great success. And that audience came in the first night, and I could feel a sheet of ice forming right over the top of their head. As they recognized, As they recognized what, they what the hell was going on up there. <laughs> but if there's no resistance, you can't be telling the truth. Yeah, I think that's so. to something else you wrote that I think is worth reading. In fact, you led into it very, very well, also from Time Bends. The real theater, as opposed to the sequestered academic one, is always straining at the inbuilt inertia of a society that always wants to deny change and the pain it necessarily involves. But it is in this effort that the musculature of important work is developed. In a different age, perhaps Oh, oh, I'm sorry, I won't go on. He's at, he then goes on to talk about Tennessee Williams. Then we skip down. He's talking about, you are talking about theater in the 40s. 
at which time he says, there was a certain balance within the audience, a balance, one might call it, between the alienated and the conformists that gave sufficient support to the naked cry of the heart and simultaneously enough resistance to force it into a rhetoric that at one stroke could be broadly understandable and yet faithful to the pain that had pressed the author to speak. That's what you mean, yes. Um, would you add to that? Would you? Well, I'd only add that the theater is since that time that I was referring to there has gotten to be, I think, uh, an it has catered to an audience which has become in some way narrower. It is not as mixed an audience, I think, as it had been. Mm -hmm. uh, in some ways, it's a far more sophisticated audience. It's ways? probably more educated. Okay. I think a lot more of them have been to college than used to be the case. Uh, there used to be, uh, oh, you'd get businessmen sitting next to maybe a detective from the police force or a, uh, uh, could be a highly skilled worker. People wanted to go to the theater, could go to the theater. Became, it was part of life. Now it's sort and of a party. they could afford it, too. Yeah, and they could afford it. It was $4, $6, something like that. And I think the, the price has uh, made it impossible, for example, uh, a New York City school teacher, mm. I think, would have a hard mm. time justifying spending forty or fifty or sixty dollars for for ticket. I don't think it's possible. Mm -hmm. Couldn't ask him or her to do it, and consequently, they're gone, and a lot of classes of people are gone. And uh, excuse me, but I think the plays have begun long since to cater to that narrower audience on Broadway. Now, sometimes mm -hmm. off Broadway, in the past. It was, it was better, but I just went to see a play five weeks ago. I paid $40. Off-Broadway. Off-Broadway. There were 12 other people in the theater with me. <laughs> <laughs> and I bet you they paid half price. <laughs> <laughs> well, people are going to be able to pay, I think it's eight fifty for a film version of The Crucible that is about to be made. Given our times, um, um, the politics, the society we live in that Mr. Albee points out will have to be protesting more, um, given even something like courtroom dramas and, and the legal law and justice as we see it in, in um, today, how, what, what do you want, if you can concern yourself with this film at all, what, what do you want brought out well, in the, here in 1995 uh, as this movie is made. What the film does, which is much more difficult to do on stage, is it involves a whole village. Mm -hmm. So you can see a village that looks like it's in Eden. See, they're shooting the picture on a magnificent island off the coast of Massachusetts, which is a bird sanctuary. There's not a road on it. It looks, I'm sure, exactly the way it looked 300 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no wires, there's no nothing and uh, the primeval forest on it, it's never been disturbed. And uh, they've rebuilt the whole city town of Salem as of 1692. The houses are there. And uh, everywhere that camera moves, you see Eden, mm -hmm. because it's surrounded with the sea. 
It's gorgeous. And you see that town become a graveyard. I can't do that on stage quite. I mean, you can refer to it and get the feeling of it, perhaps. But when you see young children wandering a high road, their parents having been hanged, and there's a boy of 10 and a child of six trying to make their way through some reeds to get some water, or animals wandering around with no masters anymore, and roofs caving in. Use some thatch roof sometimes. It uh, tells you something that this hysteria ate a village, and for a hundred years afterwards, nobody would buy property in Salem because it was cursed. And even then, in a hundred years, very little was sold. Very little, uh, and you get that feeling from this film that some really magnificent kind of horror moved into that village through the human brain and destroyed it. So that's uh, slightly different than it is in the theater, uh, which concentrates basically on a hero. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, we got the hero, Daniel Day-Lewis, <laughs> but got the hero. he's surrounded with other elements, yeah. which are hard to do otherwise. It's inescapably a social, a society. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Mr. Moore. <laughs> thank you. Drama Critics Circle. John Guare, can you hear me now? I'll do this. Okay? Still not any good. Hello? No, I there it is. Okay, good. Here I am. John Guare won the New York Drama Critics Circle Award for The House of Blue Leaves. He wrote the screenplay for Louis Mao's film, Atlantic City, and both stage and film versions of six degrees of separation, Mr. Guare. Thank you. Can you hear me? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me? Okay, great. I'm very glad to be here tonight. I was very honored to be asked to participate to participate in this uh, tribute to Arthur and uh, it jarred a memory being asked to speak jarred a memory of me which surprised me and uh, Arthur once wrote a play called a memory of two Mondays I guess maybe I just thought when I was waiting to speak I, I should call this a memory of one Monday it's just about a day this is being asked to speak I jarred this memory uh, it was in 1952, and my father and I went to the movies. Well, now, there's nothing strange about that. 
he and my mother and I, the three of us, loved the movies. We'd go a lot, musicals, singing in the rain, it's our favorite. Hoping there'd always be a new road movie with Bob and Bing. But why is that night in 1952 still so vivid? We finished dinner, and my father said very suddenly, and I might add uncharacteristically, he announced to my mother, Johnny and I are going to the movies. Now, it was a school night, and we had the 12-inch doom on, so why go out <laughs> and to see what? Well, my father, of all unlikely destinations for him, wanted to go down uh, to see the movie version of this play, Death of a Salesman, playing down the street at the uh, Colony Movie Theater on 82nd Street in Jackson Heights, which is uh, just across the East River, over there beyond those doors. <laughs> and it was to be just the two of us. My mother was not invited. Well, did she care? N not really, <laughs> because who wants to see that depressing thing with death in the title, especially after seeing Singing in the Rain at the Music Hall, which would be our all-time favorite. But it was still strange why we were going. Uh, now, I knew all about Death of a Salesman, because it was a famous Broadway play, and I knew all about Broadway because I went to Broadway plays, except only musicals. And I also knew all about Arthur Miller from Life Magazine, which was my main source of information about the world, <laughs> because I, like Arthur Miller, was going to be a playwright. Although, a funny playwright. <laughs> like the ones who wrote Annie Get Your Gun, Where's Charlie, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Wish You Were Here, with a real-life, actual swimming pool on stage, <laughs> and a number one hit song sung by Eddie Fisher. That was the American theater. <laughs> I was going to be part of it. Well, my parents enjoyed my fantasy and even encouraged it, amazingly. In 1950, for my 12th birthday, they had given me a royal portable typewriter with a card on it for the future playwright. It's a typewriter I still have, albeit it's still up on the shelf since my computer days, but it's still there. Now, that night was strange because one of the things I knew about Arthur Miller, thanks to all this very exciting McCarthy stuff, this House on American Activity stuff on television, was that he was, I think, a, communi a communist. <laughs> and not only that, so was Frederick March, the star of the movie. <laughs> I knew everybody who was a communist in show business, not only from the priests and nuns at our church, St. Joan of Arc, across the river in Jackson Heights, beyond those doors, but also because my father, Eddie Guare, a World War I veteran, had been named in that year of 1952 no less a dignitary than vice commander in charge of Americanism at his American Legion post, the Elm Jack Post number 298, over there across the river, beyond those doors. My father's post had even saluted Hollywood that year for making a movie. This is one of the most weird movies ever made. My Son John, directed by Leo McCary, where a wonderful Irish Catholic family led by their wonderful Irish Catholic mom, Helen Hayes, <laughs> after much, not too much, hand-wringing, decides to do the right thing, helped on by her family, patriotically, 
turns in her son, Robert Walker, to the FBI because he's a communist. <laughs> Put first things first. We love that movie. But I was wondering, would my family do that to me if I ever became a communist? Well, they'd have to. Yes, they'd have to. Well, so why were we going to the Colony Movie Theater tonight? Because I knew Death of a Salesman was lefty because hadn't the American Legion tried to shut the movie of Death of a Salesman down in Boston because it was commie propaganda? And I knew from my father that the Elm Jack Post, Elmhurst Jackson Heights, 298, had decided to let Death of a Salesman open here in New York because it would only last a few nights. So why then? Where are we going? And why just the two of us after dinner? The night was weirdly illicit. <laughs> well, I mean, suppose anybody saw us going in <laughs> to the Colony Theater. I mean, how would the vice commander in charge of Americanism explain this one? <laughs> and taking a kid. Was my father a secret communist? Was I about to be brainwashed? I'd have to be very careful. Would I have to turn him in? <laughs> well, my father bought the two tickets, and we went in. And the Colony Theater, which is still there on 82nd Street, there in, in, only now in 1995, it plays only Latino dubbed versions of Hollywood films. But I looked in, I walked by, and it still has the same blue-black 1930 glamour mirror glass walls it had back in 1952. And I sat down in the theater, which I loved, because I'd seen emotional peaks like The Unconquered by Cecil B. DeMille, <laughs> Gary, Coop, Gary Cooper and Paulette Goddard. And I sat there waiting, and strongly with my brain about to be washed. <laughs> well, Death of a Salesman was kind of boring. <laughs> it kept jumping back and forth in time, which I had never seen, and that was very confusing. Also, Frederick March was really crazy. I mean, he drove the car back from Boston the way my father drove, all over the road and panicky. Was, was that why we were here? <laughs> my father wanted to see somebody who drove as badly as he did? <laughs> we had got our first car the year before, a used 1949 Buick, and my father still couldn't manage the damn thing. But I looked at him. My father was really focused in on this movie. Frederick March fought with his sons. His name was Willie. Willie wanted his sons to be something. I laughed at nerdy cousin Bernard. Willie had a girlfriend in Boston. I didn't think my father had a girlfriend in Boston. <laughs> then Willie went crazy. Well, I didn't like this. And then he died. He shot himself just like the father of that girl in my school class the year before. And he would never go to heaven for having done that. Now, my father had had a heart attack two years before in 1915. He was still shaky. I didn't like that one bit, and I didn't like this movie one bit. The movie was over. We didn't wait for the double feature. Maybe there'd be a new road picture next week. And we walked home. But this time we didn't talk over the jokes and there weren't any songs to sing and discuss which ones we'd buy sheet music for. <laughs> My father walked ahead and he said to me, I want to tell you something. And he started to talk 
in the tone of voice you get when you're going to break a secret. I got very nervous. I mean, I like being told secrets, but not from my father. <laughs> what was coming? He always had a voice like a mumble anyway, so you had to get close. But he told me, he said, this is what I want you to know. He said, I, I had once been a salesman. I said, like the man in the movie? He said, no, 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 I was a salesman for Procter & Gamble. I said, you worked for the people who made ivory soap? I was very impressed. <laughs> My father went on, he told me, that after he got out of the army, when World War I, the war to end all wars, was over, he came back to New York and then went out to L.A., to start a new life working as a salesman. He lived in L.A.? I was amazed. He had lived downtown in L.A. in a section called Angel's Flight, which was a street on a hill so steep you had to take a cable car to get up to it. I was amazed. You worked for Ivory Soap? And we could live in L.A. in a place called Angel Flight and you never told me? Why aren't we there? We kept on walking, and this is what he said. My father, who worked down at Wall Street and hated it, my father said, well, it hadn't worked out. That was it. We walked home in silence. It hadn't worked out. What does that mean? I got home, my mother said, how was the movie? Fine, fine. My father had his other usual voice, his bright, cheery, mumbly voice. Usual commie propaganda. I asked my mother later about what my father had told me. She said he was in L.A. <laughs> he was a salesman for ivory soap. Said, That's what he told me. She said, then you know more about him than I do the end. Now one thing I knew was that the secret he had told me that night was directly connected to the story we had just seen. And seeing that story had somehow made it possible for him to say to me those four unspeakable words. It hadn't worked out. And that night was the only time, and I walked back from that movie, the only time I ever heard him talk about that part of his life. If I brought it up later, he'd laugh it off with a song or a joke or a drink. And by the time I could have brought it up and pushed it, pushed it, well, he had died. But something happened on that night back in 1952. I also saw for the first time that a play, well, a movie that had been a play, a movie whose prime identity was as a play, something with actors in it, could touch a man as familiar as my father with such mysterious power that it made him a stranger to me and gave him a strength to reveal what? Not a secret. Certainly what he told me didn't qualify as a secret in my book. But what was it that he had told me? was something deeper than a secret, 
something bad, nothing bad had happened, nothing, no crimes. But that story we had seen gave him the courage to say the most horrible words he could imagine. It hadn't worked out. Had his brush with death two years before made him need to say, I have to tell this fact to someone, but I don't know how to get in touch with it? He knew about the play Death of a Salesman. I mean, everybody did. It was in the air. And had he used going to that movie version of that specific play, had he used going to that to somehow release that burden? He had to tell one person what he had never mentioned before. Certainly not my mother. He had to tell his secret. My father's secret was failure. Failure that didn't have any moral he could pass on to me. Failure without a lesson to inspire his only child. Just a need to record a puzzling, descent-spiraling, life-chilling failure. And maybe, maybe, in telling it eased the pain my father was in. This was a man who you'd, you'd hear scream in the shower behind the bathroom door in the morning, no, 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 no. And he'd come out all smiles out of the bathroom, drying himself off, ready to go to work down on Wall Street, which he hated. And I'd ask, why were you screaming no, no? He'd say, you're hearing things. The kid's hearing things. <laughs> Death of a salesman did not connect to me, this 14-year-old. But it did something far weirder and more frightening. It did make, it made the stranger out of the most comfortable person in my life. An event made all the more puzzling because Eddie Guare, vice commander in charge of Americanism, could never get to that place again. But that night, I knew the impulse behind what he told me was not chastising, not moralizing, not even drunken rambling. No, the impulse that made him say those four words was love. I didn't know it at the time, but I became aware that that night that there was another American theater walking back home on that dark street in Jackson Heights across the river over there beyond those doors. Not the theater of swimming pools and happy hearts and Ethel Merman singing, I got the sun in the morning and the moon in the evening and I'm all right, or Mary Martin being a cockeyed optimist in a world where the skies are bright canary yellow and life's a bowl of jello. No, I had wandered into the other American theater, the real American theater, the unwanted American theater that takes you to the one place you never want to go to, where you have to go to, to have the buried child in you unburied, where you have to go to get the power to say the ultimate and terrifying words it hadn't worked out. My father told me as much as was possible for him, and perhaps something was eased. T.S. Eliot, in his memorable essay, Tradition and Individual Talent, writes about the last time the artist was a full-fledged member of the establishment society. In Shakespeare's day, the people went to the theater for the same reasons you'd go to a doctor today. Audiences went to the Globe Theater to see their problems acted out. Seeing emotions carried to the extreme helped audiences find the proper limits for their own lives. I wonder today, did my father go to see Death of a Salesman, specifically this instinctual, primal, Elizabethan way 
although he wouldn't know what the hell I was talking about if he woke him out of his grave today with all the knowledge in the world, but that he knew if he saw this story, the psychic pain of his life would be what? Forget about healed, just eased. And I wonder if this is what accounts for the universality of Arthur Miller's work, his ability to get into people's dreams, to touch the disappointment, to give voice to the shame of failure, to make that which is most human in us also the very same thing we can least bear to acknowledge. To say at least once in our lives, yes, I've been heard, I'm not alone, no matter where we are on this planet. Did what my father told me that night heal him in some way? I hope so, I think so. Some debt to his only child, this meager confession which haunted him for a lifetime. Some debt was paid that night, some dent made that night walking home through the streets over there across the East River beyond those doors. And perhaps this is a slight key to opening the door to Miller's greatness. His talent for abstracting a character like Willie Loman that allows all of us to fit in and look at ourselves. When he writes, all my sons, we are all included in the pain that needs to be released. The sin committed is not against all your sons. The sin is committed in the name of my sons. My wife and I were out of town uh, uh, last month when I got a message on my machine from Penn asking, what's the title, Arthur Miller and the American Theater, satisfactory for the speech I was going to give on 30th of October at Town Hall. Sure, why not? Because there's something embracing in the end, Arthur Miller and the American Theater. Arthur Miller is the American Theater. But there's also something confrontational in it. In the end, Arthur Miller and the American Theater, like Dempsey and Furpo, <laughs> the Braves and the Indians. And there's mostly something ironic about it. Because if it were up to the American Theater, Arthur Miller, whom we happily celebrate tonight, would not have a career. Let me read from Time Bends. Arthur writes, when I look back, it was obvious that aside from Death of a Salesman, every one of my plays had originally met with a majority of bad, indifferent, or sneering notices. Except for Brooks Atkinson at the beginning and later Harold Klerman, I exist as a playwright without a major reviewer in my corner. It has been primarily actors and directors who have kept my work before the public, which has indeed reciprocated with its support. Only abroad and in some American places outside New York has criticism embraced my plays. I have often rescued a sense of reality by recalling Chekhov's remark, if I had listened to the critics, I'd have died drunk in the gutter. <laughs> and yet, and yet, here tonight is a man, rumored to be 80, with new plays pouring out of him, some still not produced here in America, like the thrilling ride down Mount Morgan, but done with great success in England subsidized theaters. He has a, uh, published a new book of stories. He's a working writer. So what has sustained Arthur Miller all these years? Certainly not the theater itself. Arthur has described Broadway as the frightened theater, with its success, flop, terror. The American theater, those of us who work in it know, is an insane ghetto. Robert Anderson, a playwright, has described our theater as the place 
where you can make a killing but not a living. <laughs> and how, this is the question I bring up tonight, what amazes me, how has Arthur found a way to make a living? By that I mean where has he found his nourishment? And I think how he has found his nourishment is probably the main reason why we're here tonight and why he is this working writer. Let me quote again from Time Bends, which I think is one of the most remarkable events in a where a writer recounts one of the momentous events in his adult life. Arthur writes, it all began in 1965 with a call on the crackling French telephone in Inga's apartment in Paris where we had come for the Luschino Visconti production of After the Fall. I was having a hard time making out that it was Keith calling from London and that he would fly to Paris tomorrow to see me. Keith Botsford was my editor at Viking. He was saying something about pen, on which I had only vaguely heard. And the next day, Keith Botsford and David Carver, a Sydney Green Street without the asthma, arrived in Paris at Inga's apartment. Carver had served as secretary general for Penn for many years now, and had obviously given much of his time and hope to it. But he said, I must candidly tell you, Mr. Miller, we are now at such a point that if you do not accept the presidency, Penn will be no more. The presidency of Penn, writes Arthur Miller, I hardly knew what the organization did beyond the haziest impression that it was some sort of literary discussion club. Penn, Carver explained, was established after the war, the first war, my father's war, by such people as John Galsworthy, Bernard Shaw, G.K. Chesterton, H.G. Wells, John Maysfield, Arnold Bennett, Henri Barbusse, and a number of like-minded others in England and Europe who thought that an international writer's organization might help prevent another war by combating censorship and nationalist pressures on writers. Of course, it didn't stop the Second World War, but in the 30s, it helped draw the world's attention to the menace of Nazism by expelling the German delegation, which had refused to condemn Hitler's censorship and brutality towards writers. But the point now was that they had come to the end of the string. But why me, Miller asked. I had no connection with Penn and no desire to run any organization. I frankly wasn't sure I even believed in organizations for writers anymore. Despite its valuable work, Penn had not made a bridge to the generation now in its 20s and 30s and had come to be regarded as tame and largely irrelevant. It had also been a victim of the Cold War, which had damaged, if not destroyed, its credit in smaller countries that were not entirely enlisted on the side of the West. The recent detente policy called for new attempts to tolerate East-West differences, which Penn had not yet gained the experience to do. A fresh start was needed now, and it was me. Carver snapped open a cigarette case, his gold cigarette case, certain as I was that I wanted nothing to do with this new diversion from writing. There was no way of cutting short this great figure of a Briton, blonde of hair, blue of eye, with silky skin as white as the inside of a grapefruit rind, two jolly pink rosettes on his cheeks and shoulders as broad as the back of a wagon. We are trying to save some lives, he said. We've managed to now and then, not enough, but a few. Lives, says Miller. This was still the mid-60s, well before the human rights concerns had surfaced in the West through such politically impartial organizations as Amnesty International, founded only a, only a few years earlier. At this point, the politi politicalization of human rights was complete. 
the communist side erupting only when its partisans in the West were harassed, while the West made noises only when Eastern regimes clamped down on their dissidents, Carver was opening up an entirely new vista of depoliticized human ground on which to stand and defend everybody at the same time, and thus perhaps to speak to the sterility of two decades of Cold War. It was an attractive, if not quite credible, position. Penn had been able, Carver said by way of example, to convince the Hungarian government to let some imprisoned writers leave after the Russians invaded in 56. They still had centers in Poland and Czechoslovakia that collected information and publicized cases of oppression from time to time. It's very irregular, he confessed, and doesn't always do much good, but it does often enough to make it a pity to have it go out of business now. But what was Penn's leverage? Why should anyone pay any attention to it? Because they dislike bad publicity in the East quite as much, if not more, than we are in the West. In fact, they are eager to be seen as modern, up-to-date societies and not tyrannies at all, he said, raising his eyebrows and trying not to smile. And why must you go out of business, I asked. One could almost see him put his, on his diplomatic black Hamburg. They had been unable in recent years to attract sufficient writers of note, of international standing. I could draw in people of that kind, he thought. Possibly run it. I run everything, said Carver. You need only appear for the international congresses and come up periodically, perhaps once a year. I assure you, it'll mean not no much time at all. <laughs> you want a figurehead. Not at all. The president has real power if he chooses to take command of it. But I had a suspicion of being used and wondered suddenly whether our State Department or CIA or equivalent British hands might be stirring this particular stew. I decided to flush them out. What if I wanted to invite Soviet writers to join Penn? Carver's mouth dropped open. Why, that would be wonderful, of course. Yes, in fact, you see, we are always in danger of splitting apart altogether. Our East Bloc centers are always rather on the edge, and you would be most persuasive to the Eastern people. Because if the point is to help prevent war, the presence of Soviet writers would be stupendous. If we and the Soviet writers could all join together in a single organization, will you take it on? I stalled. I said I'd think about it for a bit but he had to know in the next few days before the invitation to go out for the Bled Congress. Bled, where is Bled? In Yugoslavia, there's a center in Yugoslavia? Oh yes, a very good one, and they all need us very much. It'll be our first Congress in Yugoslavia. After a couple of days, reluctantly but snagged by curiosity, I consented, but I was left with the mystery of why I, would, uh, why I had been chosen. I could only suspect what two years, two decades later I learned was probably the truth. Among the entries in my dossier, which I was finally able to wheedle out of the FBI in 1986, was a 1965 cable to Washington from the U.S. Embassy in Moscow describing my reception there, two short weeks before this visit of Carver's, as semi-official and warm. In fact, Botsford had phoned the day we returned to Paris from the east. The British press may have reported my welcome at the train station by quite a large delegation from the Soviet Writers' Union. But it was also possible that Carver had other sources of information about my current favor with the Soviets. In any case, he knew that I was acceptable to both East and West, the perfect Penn president now, that the organization's very existence was in grave question. And 20 years later, how has it worked out? I'd like to finish just with a brief quote from a compatriot of Arthur Miller's, Harold Pinter, who writes, Arthur Miller and I landed at Istanbul Airport on March 17, 1985. We were visiting Turkey on behalf of International Pen to investigate allegations of the torture and persecution of Turkish writers. 
The trip got off to a bad start. I had two suitcases, one hadn't made it. Apart from other things, this left me with no socks. So Arthur lent me his socks, bloody good ones they were too, made to last. <laughs> we met dozens of writers. Those who had been tortured in prison were still trembling, but they insisted on giving us a drink, pouring the shaking bottle into our glasses. One of the writer's wives was mute. She had fainted and lost her power of speech when she had seen her husband in prison. He was now out. His face was like a permanent tear. I don't mean tear as in tears, but tear as in being torn. Turkey at this time was a military dictatorship fully endorsed by the United States. The U.S. ambassador, hearing of our presence and thinking he was playing a clever card, gave a dinner party at the U.S. Embassy in Ankara in honor of Arthur. As I was Arthur's running mate, they had to invite me too. I'd hardly taken my first bite at the hors d'oeuvre when I found myself in the middle of a ferocious row with the U.S. political counselor about the existence of torture in Turkish prisons. This rattled on merrily throughout the dinner until finally Arthur rose to speak. Since he was the guest of honor, the floor was his, and he made it his in no uncertain terms. He discussed the term democracy and asked why, as the United States was a democracy, it supported military dictatorships throughout the world, including the country we were now in. In Turkey, he said, hundreds of people are in prison for their thoughts. This persecution is supported and subsidized by the United States. Where, he asked, does that leave our understanding of democratic values? He was clear as a bell. The ambassador thanked him for his speech. <laughs> After dinner, I thought I'd keep out of trouble for a while and went to look at the paintings. <laughs> Suddenly, I saw the ambassador and his aides bearing down on me. Why they weren't bearing down on Arthur, I didn't know. <laughs> Perhaps he was too tall. <laughs> the ambassador said to me, Mr. Pinter, you don't seem to understand the realities of the situation here. Don't forget, the Russians are just over the border. <clears throat> you have to bear in mind the political reality, the diplomatic reality, the military reality. Well, the reality I've been referring to, I said, is that of electric current on your genitals. <laughs> the ambassador drew himself, as they say, up to his full height and glared at me. Sir, he said, you are a guest in my house. He turned, as they also say, on his heel, and his aides turned too. Arthur suddenly loomed up. Arthur, I think I've been thrown out, I said. Good, I'll come with you, he said without hesitation. <laughs> Being thrown out of the U.S. Embassy in Ankara with Arthur Miller, a voluntary exile, well, that's one of the proudest moments of my life. <laughs> so, Arthur, we're... We're all here tonight to happily honor you. You've spawned more than one generation of playwrights. Anytime a playwright takes on the world at large, the society, the way the society works, whether it be David Mamet with Glen Gary, Glen Ross, or Speed the Plow, or Wallace Shawn with Aunt Dan and Lemon or The Fever, or David Rabe or John Robin Bates' Substance of Fire, or his new play of Fair Country, or Susan Laurie Park's America play, or Tony Kushner's Glorious Angels in America. He or she is following the path that Arthur Miller has so blazingly lit, but more importantly, kept lit. We revere Arthur Miller not only for his life in the theater, but also for showing us how to lead a life outside the theater, out there, beyond those doors. Thank you.
David Mamet, playwright, director, and screenwriter, received the Pulitzer Prize and the New York Drama Critics Circle Award for Glen Gary Glenn Ross. He also wrote Speed the Plow, Sexual Perversity in Chicago, A Life in the Theater, and many other plays. But tonight, he will read an excerpt from Roughing It by Mark Twain. Thank you. It's a, it's, it's a great honor to be, uh, be here tonight. And I was going to read a long excerpt from Roughing It, which I liked very much, but I, which I could never quite convince myself was uh, fitting for the evening. So I'm now going to read a short excerpt from Roughing It and follow it with a, a short uh, sentiment of my own. Uh, Mark Twain is being told of some advice he got when he was a junior editor on a paper, I think, in uh, Carson City, Nevada. And the senior editor says, Never say we learn so-and-so, or it is reported, or it is rumored, or we understand so-and-so, but get out there and get the absolute facts, and then speak out and say it is so-and-so, otherwise people will not put confidence in your news. Uh, American literature, I think, is the outcast's narrative. It's written by people who, who looked around and didn't quite understand what was going on around them, but they knew that what was going on around them was not quite, quite right, that something, in fact, was perhaps terribly wrong, and that that something must be addressed, for things were not as they had been told. Great literature has, it cannot be written in anger, for as Virginia Woolf uh, told us in A Room of One's Own, one cannot write in anger. But great literature has always and will always be written and only written in a mixture of sadness and love. And that mixture is the, the hallmark of Arthur Miller's work. To have written drama informed by, but always superior to, the political is not only a magnificent, but I think a unique achievement and an inspiration to us all, uh, members of the audience and, and writers both, and I think of a, uh, a quote from uh, Rudyard Kipling. Uh, he wrote it to survivors of the Sepoy Mutiny at a 50th anniversary, but I, I'd like to um, address it uh, from my heart and, and with thanks uh, to Mr. Miller. And it's the end of his poem, and it goes like this. One service more we dare to ask, pray for us heroes, pray that when fate lays on us our task, we do not shame the day. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Zoe Caldwell, actress and director, has won the Tony Award three times. She will soon be seen on Broadway portraying Maria Callas in Terence McNally's Masterclass. And tonight, she will speak about Arthur Miller, our guest of honor, and introduce him as our final speaker of the evening, Ms. Caldwell. Thank you. I came, how's that, too loud, huh? Too loud. 
you want me in front? I'll come in front loud. I'm not good behind here, am I? Is it okay? It's okay, right. So, I came to Arthur Miller rather late in life, in my life. I knew, of course, he was the great American playwright. I'd seen all his plays and I'd acted in a couple. But I had to wait until I married Robert Whitehead to inherit Arthur Miller. And even more importantly, Inga. Who became my surrogate sister. And then as a glorious bonus, the most irresistible four-year-old girl, Rebecca, who once Robert and I had a couple of kids, became their surrogate sister. So you see, it was a very familial arrangement. And it was good fun. Except for one thing, Arthur's birthdays. You see, I'm Australian, and in Australia, you celebrate every birthday like mad, up to the age of 21. And then you get the key of the door, a pen, and a rather nice tie. Then you forget about your birthdays until you turn 80. And then everyone gathers and adores you and wants to listen to every word you say because they know that every word you say will be golden. And that seems to me a pretty swell plan. But Arthur, you see, is not Australian, so he celebrated every single birthday. Year after year after year. Now the parties were swell because Inger is the most sensational cook. But you see, they live in Roxbury. And so all their friends and neighbors who were invited to the party were the great and the near great. I mean, Alexander Calderwood cut into an old Melita can and come out with a bird that flew. Sol Steinberg would just put a couple of lines on a piece of paper which could be auctioned off at Sotheby's later on. I mean, the list was endless. There was Ro there were Rose and Bill Styron, Olga and Henry Carlyle, Francine and Clee Gray. And I remember one year that Martha Clark made a special dance for Arthur and danced it barefoot in front of him on the barn floor. No. How do you compete with those presents? 
I said to Robert, Robert, I know exactly what we'll do. We'll give Arthur a really nice tie. <laughs> and we did. Year after year after year. Now, you may not know this, but Arthur Miller is not a tie man. So somewhere in that house in Roxbury, there's a drawer full of really nice ties. <laughs> but that was yesteryear. Now we come to tomorrow. You see the pen. No, not that. Pen is really nice. Because what did they do? They got a great gathering of people to want to adore and who will listen to every word you say because they know that every word you say will be pure Thank you very much. I uh, am slightly embarrassed, which is as good as being totally embarrassed, because I hadn't thought that John Guare had read time bends that carefully. <laughs> and I was going to pretend to make a speech quoting without attribution <laughs> from my book. So here I am with a speech based on John Guare's speech. But thank God, he didn't get to some other elements that I'll be able to deal with. <laughs> I want to say one thing, though, to start off. And that is uh, people, especially in America, I must say, which is we're up to our necks in politics all the time. But when a writer deals with anything that has to do with the political life of this country, which of course 
goes without saying, is vital to the country. It's a democracy after all. Countries with no politics are dictatorships. We are full of politics. But when a writer starts to deal with these problems or the effects of politics on human beings, he can't be aesthetic somehow. It means somehow that he's impure. And uh, he's not really a writer, he's some sort of a politician. And if you point out Mark Twain, or if you point out Balzac, if you point out all the Greek playwrights and Shakespeare and Dante and whoever you want to mention who achieved any greatness, that they were all up to their necks in politics and wrote about politics. Well, you're not dead long enough to get away with that. I really haven't written about politics. I've written about human beings in the sway of the society that they live in. This seems to be peculiar to some people. It's as though one of the first questions you ask about a person whom you've met is what does he do for a living? Well, that's political. Is he a grocer, a doctor, a lawyer, a thief? What is he? Well, you want to place him in his background, don't you, in order to dig what he's like. And that's all I'm trying to do. I try to put him, the man, where he is. I don't always succeed, but that's the effort. Now, I became a president of Penn because basically it was an extension of my writing life. Uh, I felt at the time that if what I had written on the stage gave me some credibility in the attempt to ease the burden of uh, imprisoned writers or oppressed writers, that I was almost obliged to use that credit, such as it was. But it sometimes resulted in surprising comedies when I indulged myself that way. And I'll read to you the bloody last few pages of this speech, which was purloined tonight. <laughs> On page six, <laughs> I've written, there isn't time tonight to do more than touch on a few of the comedies that my job as the president of Penn put in my path. I met once with a woman who at the time was head of all Soviet culture, Madame Ekaterina Fortseva, who had rather famously been Khrushchev's lover and had cut her wrists when he fired her. Now she was back. And thinking I was commiserating with her, 
I ventured that she was looking rather tired. In fact, she looked rather miserable. She was exhausted. I can't help being tired, she said. I must read all these books, with which she gestured behind her to a long table covered with piles of books. I noticed slips of paper sticking out of each volume, no doubt marking dangerous passages for her attention. There were four male assistants sitting with us, all dressed in the same blue suit and white shirt, all expressionless as characters out of Kafka. It is a wonderful feeling to be an American in a situation like this, knowing that they can't bury you in sand with your passport. So I said, you know, Madame Spotseva, I've never known writers as patriotic as your Russians. Why don't you try an experiment? Take a month off and just don't read any of those books <laughs> and see what happens. The four male assistants straightened as though electrified and Fortseva looked at me open-mouthed. Next evening, at a cocktail party, one of the assistants approached me. I had asked during our meeting the previous day how Soviet writers were paid, by the book sold, or a salary, or what? And they had explained the system at length. Now, next evening, this assistant handed me a thickly stuffed envelope, and I opened it. There were hundreds of rubles in it. My plays had been performed for years, and they probably owed me millions in royalties. <laughs> so I was curious to know which play this money came from. What is this for, I asked. I don't know, he replied. Why, you want more? <laughs> well, I said, if you've got more, sure, I'll take more. The look he gave me was, at long last, one of relaxed understanding, <laughs> the kind that passes between car thieves and bond salesmen, <laughs> regardless of nationality. Exactly why and to what end they were corrupting me, I don't think they'd figured out yet. But I suppose that by actually paying me when they didn't have to, gave them a feeling of security for the future. And so next day, I got a few thousand more rubles. <laughs> With any concentration, I suppose, I could have kept this up indefinitely. <laughs> but after buying a fur piece for my wife, I couldn't find anything else in Russia that we wanted. And since taking the money abroad was illegal, the whole thing ended as a kind of unfinished, absurd poetry. I don't know whether very much of my work in pen meant anything in the end, but I certainly learned things I could not have learned otherwise. I found that in a condition of powerlessness, confronting clashing ideologies, one's only weapon was an absolute impartiality toward people. It was not Penn's job nor mine to, con to resolve their conflicting ideologies and if those ideologies did not disappear, they did become, so to speak, like some mentally defective old uncle sitting in the wheelchair, nodding at the wrong times and muttering to himself 
as you carried on a conversation with his wife. Of course, it was not only the East-West conflict one had to deal with. The Israelis were in pen and Lebanese Arab representatives too, and their passions were hot. Marxist African states and capitalist ones and feudal ones too. There were Hungarian, Polish, and East German communists and writers in exile from those countries who quite simply despised them. Others merely half despised them, and still others thought they were terrific. And the, then there were people like Baldazar of Hungarian pen, an important literary critic and editor, and faithful party liner, but terribly sophisticated in the British manner. He had published an interview with Franz Kafka. A writer approached him at some public occasion in Budapest and had said, I have calculated that you would have had to have been nine years old to have interviewed Kafka when you claim to have done. <laughs> a split second passed in a split second, and Balazar replied, this just shows how early senility can set in. <laughs> and he went right on editing and being Hungarian Penn's chief delegate. And so the president of Penn, I learned, had a lot to remember and a lot to forget. I remember some powerful explosions of anger that I thought would blow the organization apart. But when the uproar got bad enough, there could somehow magically be heard the tapping of David Carver's pen on the table. Everyone turned to the enormous Englishman who would quietly say, we really can't have that and life would continue. They all knew, in short, that in the end, nobody could win except the principle of freedom or the dissolution of our comradeship. Time and again, I had to repeat that Penn had no armies, that we were free to stay or leave, that in, a very different, in our very different systems, we all had, in one way or another, to defend the integrity of our work in the East from government in the West from excessive commercialization and the censorship of the market. Penn was the voice of cultures, truthfully addressing one another rather than governments or armies in confrontation. The object was not to win something, but to illuminate something, something we loved, and to show it off to others unfamiliar with it. But I can't stop without telling you about the great day when it, at last, the Russians indicated they might actually join Penn. But first, they would test the water by sending an observer to a Congress. The Russians, I came to see, were fairly convinced that they were not likable to a lot of people, unlike Americans who are sure that everybody loves them. <laughs> the observer turned out to be a splay-footed Moscow professor of linguistics a sort of overage Viking with very blonde hair and an unsmiling disposition whose first words to me were, why do you in the West make such a fuss over mediocrities like Yevtushenko and Voznesensky, who have written perhaps one or two decent poems while others have devoted whole lifetimes to research in, for example, linguistics and other scientific literary subjects? I could hear the voice of more than one academic I have known, a 
And so little by little, we are all being brought happily together in the usual human soup of mutual understanding and natural hostility. <laughs> Following the Viking came the real bosses of the Writers' Union, chiefly Alexei Surkov, a poet who in Moscow some time earlier had said to me, the day we took Berlin and the great patriotic war ended, I climbed out of my tank and looked up at the sky and said aloud, now all the bad people are dead. He soon became head of the Writers' Union and was famous for sending a considerable number of writers to jail. But now he had come to negotiate the conditions for the Soviet entry into Penn. For as long as a year, I had been hearing about his wish to discuss these conditions with me. But whenever I asked for specifics, I was informed that they would soon be sent along. Nothing had shown up. Now we sat in a New York hotel room, and again Surkoff was amiably mentioning these conditions, which he was sure would not be a problem for Penn to accept. Well, I said, I'm ready to hear what they are. What do you have in mind? The Penn Constitution, he said, will have to be changed. <laughs> what specifically, I asked, trying to contain, contain my shock. Surely, he said with a confident smile, you cannot expect Soviet writers to sign on to a promise to criticize their own government. There are other things wrong with it too, but that is completely unacceptable. Well, I began, Penn members are all obliged, obliged to criticize any government that oppresses writers. But if you wish to, you can join under this constitution and then offer amendments to the membership. But I have to tell you now, that I'm sure they will never vote such a change. No, no, he said. First the changes, then we join. <laughs> Dawn was slowly rising the dark recesses of my mind. You mean that I should submit these changes to the membership? Miller, he said, smiling man to man. You know you don't need to submit changes. Just change them. You mean with no vote at all? Miller, if you tell them to change, they will change. Well, I'm very flattered, I said, <laughs> thinking that this man, powerful as he was, could not live forever. <laughs> but maybe, I said, maybe we'd better wait some more before you try to enter pen. And so we did, and a few, a few years later, they did, and without changing anything. I would like to have talked about the first New York Congress in 1968, which I think may have marked a turning point in relations between the United States and Latin American culture. But I've taken too much time. I would have if I'd read the first four pages. <laughs> so, so let me leave you with my deepest thanks for this tribute in my own country, no less, and in my own time. Thank you.